Well, last weekend, uh, we started our series, Last Days, and we looked at signs of times, what's going on in our culture today, and how that relates to what Paul told Timothy would happen in the last days. This morning, we're going to look about why it's taking so long, when is the Lord going to return. And then next weekend will be our last uh, weekend in this series, and I've changed it up a little bit. We're going to look at Ezekiel 38 and 39 next weekend. You say, like, so what? I don't even know where the book of Ezekiel is. It's in the Old Testament. And those two chapters, you may want to read ahead, really seem to be painting the picture of what's going on with world events right now. And so we're going to kind of do a current event, how does it relate to Scripture type of message next weekend, so you don't want to miss that. Let's get started, though, this morning. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would be present with us, with your Holy Spirit, and that you speak into our hearts and our lives that we would understand more clearly what you are doing in the world and your timing and the second coming of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for him and for our salvation. In Christ's name, amen. There's a, a little uh, story called The Little Prince that was written around World War II uh, by a Frenchman. And uh, this is probably the most translated literary French work uh, ever. And it's one of those unique stories because it speaks to you as a child, but it also speaks to you as an adult. And it's about a little prince who comes from another world to visit this world. And he's not quite able to understand our ways. And he's befriended by a fox. And he and the fox become very good friends over time. In fact, they become best friends. And there's a point in the story where the little prince and the fox are talking about their next meeting. And the fox says, I want to know exactly, little prince, exactly what time you and I are going to meet again. And the little prince seems a little confused as to why the fox has to know exactly why. So he tells him, he says, okay, we will meet at four o'clock. But why do you have to know the exact time when I'm coming? And the fox answers him and says, because if I know that you are coming at four I will start getting happy at three. What are you happy about this morning? What I mean is, who or what are you excited about that hasn't happened yet? Who is it that you are planning on meeting? Or what is it that you're planning on doing? That just deep down inside, you know, just anticipating that, you find to be somewhat of a thrill. I know for Marcia, my wife and I, probably the biggest thing that we're anticipating with great excitement is the birth of our first grandchild. And uh, our daughter Bethany will, and her husband uh, are going to have a baby girl in the first week of November. Catalina Andrea Lozada will be her name. I've already picked out the name. And uh, we are excited, aren't we? Like I think about it, I semi-dream about it. I imagine holding her. I mean, it's just, it's just something we anticipate with great, great excitement. You know, there is something that I have found, at least in my life, exhilarating when you're anticipating something good in the future. In fact, part of the whole experience is the waiting, isn't it? Okay, <laughs> it's just earth to, you know, all right? Yeah, it's, it's that waiting sense. So let me ask you one more time. What are you anticipating? Who or what are you looking forward to? And even now as you're sitting here, and I'm talking about this, 
you're kind of excited about what's going to happen next. I know some of you are very excited about lunch, all right? But I like, I like to go a little bit deeper than that, if that's okay. They were excited. They were anticipating the return of the king. He had promised that he would come back again. And they had been waiting. And in fact, their anxiety was kind of increasing. It was kind of moving past the excited phase to the uh-oh phase. Maybe, maybe he's not coming. Maybe we bought something that's not true. Maybe this whole thing is a hoax. And I want us to read about their situation because it's kind of like the situation we may find ourselves in today. So turn to Second Peter chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, it's like page 860 or so. And I encourage you to have it open to there. And Peter is writing these believers. And listen to what he says beginning in verse 1 of Second Peter chapter 3. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Let's stop there. One of the signs of being in the last days will be the increase in the number of people who are going to poke fun of or mock the whole concept that Jesus is coming back again. In fact, if you think about it, a lot of people today don't live like Jesus is coming back again, do they? I mean, a lot of us even as followers of Jesus get caught up in living life the way it is. I mean, we live this life as though this were it. We're done right here. Live it with all the gusto we have. Eat, drink, and be married today. For tomorrow we what? <clears throat> For tomorrow we die. It's kind of the philosophy that's out there. Now, don't misunderstand that. That does not mean that people don't think there's an afterlife. If you were to poll most Americans, most Americans would say to you that they do believe that there is an afterlife. The problem is, in their minds, the afterlife is way too mysterious. Who can comprehend it? Who can understand it? And so what they have a tendency to do is to say, you know what, I'm just going to live the best life I know how, and I believe that if I live a reasonably good life, that when I die, I'll go wherever you're supposed to go, and I'll meet whoever you're supposed to meet, and I'll get by, and everything is going to be okay. You ever run into people like that? Maybe that was you at one time, and then you came to know the saving power of Jesus Christ and realized it doesn't have to be so nebulous. You can know You can know where you're going when you die. You can know him personally. If you've never come to that knowledge, I'd be happy to talk to you about how you can. Any one of our staff would be our elders. Or perhaps many people here would be willing to share with you how they came to know Christ as their Savior. But you know, there's also kind of a a problem that people in our culture have with the second coming. And the problem is they don't like the second coming as it's described in the Bible and and as Jesus uh, is portrayed. Because remember, he died as a sacrificial lamb. Remember that? I mean, that's part of the whole gospel. But when he comes back, he does not come back as a lamb, but he comes back in Revelation as a what? As a lion, okay? Now, not a real lion, but metaphorically as a lion. And he comes back to rule and to reign, and he comes back with judgment on this evil world and this rebellious world. 
And there are a whole lot of folks out there that don't like that whole concept of Jesus coming back and judging. And the reason why is because they're trying to rewrite the Bible and they're trying to re-character Christ so that all roads lead to heaven, so that there are so many ways to heaven. You know, Oprah talks about that. There there, There are millions of ways to heaven. So if there are millions of ways to heaven and Jesus accommodating, accepting of everybody, how on earth can he come back and be judgmental? So increasingly, you're going to find more and more opposition to the idea of the second coming of Jesus as we understand the second coming of Jesus in the Bible. In the Bible. And that is what causes us sometimes a little frustration when it comes to waiting for Jesus to return and telling people that we believe that he's coming again. Because people can look at us and say, first of all, I don't, I don't believe you're right. And secondly, if you honestly think he's coming again, why has it been over 2,000 years the moment he said he would come? And why hasn't he shown up? And I don't know about you, but I have private moments sometimes of doubt where I just kind of, for whatever reason, start thinking to myself, you know, why hasn't he shown up? And, and I mean, is it really true? Anybody besides me have those moments? Most of you probably have greater faith than me. But I do, I just have those moments where I just go, God, wait, why don't you send your son? Lord, why don't you return? Why are you taking so long? It's making it harder and harder for your Christians to, to kind of stand up and say that you're coming when you don't. And Peter tells us in the passage that we're not alone. If you look at that passage carefully again, he's writing to these group of people and he's saying to them, don't, don't feel like you're all alone here. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Don't let the scoffers get the best of you. Folks, these were people who were living 20 or 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. And they were wondering if he really was coming back again. Like you and I, many of them were believers. But unlike us, they were facing persecution for their faith. And when you're facing persecution for your faith, what do you want? In the words of Star Trek, beat me up. Right? Right? You want deliverance. And when deliverance doesn't come, it has a tendency to shake your what? Has a tendency to shake your faith. And they want out. Well, we're living not 20 or 30 years after his resurrection promise. We're living thousands of years after that. We're not really facing persecution yet, but it kind of shakes your faith when he doesn't show up, especially when you have scoffers whispering or yelling in your ear. Who were these scoffers? Well, these scoffers are individuals who have always been. They, they lived back then and they live today. And you hear their voices everywhere. You hear them at work. You hear them at school. You hear them in the media. You, you hear them through reading books. You hear them in your family. You sometimes even hear them in the church. I mean, if you look at the Bible and go all the way back to the days of Noah, the scoffers were there. Noah built a what? Built an ark. How long did it take him? 120 years, a very long time. Had there been a flood on earth yet? No. So you got a guy building this massive ship, telling everybody that there's going to be a flood, and he's going to rescue all the animals, and anybody else that wants to come on board. And people are looking, and they're what? Scoffing, they're laughing, they're mocking him. When I read that story, it scares me, because I think to myself, when I've been one of the people going, ha, 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 you know, what do you think you're doing, building a ship? There's no flood. You live in a paradise. What's wrong with you? 
In Jeremiah's day, when Jeremiah was, was prophesying to the people, he was telling them that God was going to bring judgment because of their rebellion. But what did they do to Jeremiah? They just laughed at him. They ignored him. They mocked him. We are living in prosperity. Everything's going great. There are no issues. We're safe. We're secure. Where is the word of the Lord that you speak of? They scoffed. In Jesus' day, they scoffed. They mocked him. They denied that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, and they crucified him. Scoffers and mockers have always been with us, always questioning the truth, always trying to rewrite the truth, always, always trying to bring Christ down to their level. We hear them in so many different voices in so many different ways. And Peter says, don't let it rock your boat. Don't let it shake your faith. Don't let it make you think that because Jesus hasn't come yet that, that you're wrong. Peter says, remember, remember what already has been said to you. When they're telling you, look, nothing's changed from the beginning. People live, they die, they live, they die, they live, they die. Life and time just goes on. He says, says, forget what they've just said to you because they have forgotten what God did in the beginning. So let's look at the passage again. I want to pick it up in verse 5. It says, but they deliberately forget That long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. In other words, Peter says, let's go back to the very beginning. In the beginning, God spoke, and the water separated, and what appeared? Dry land. And what did God do? God created, he put all kinds of creatures on the dry land. And then the height of his creation is when he made man and woman. And he took man and made him out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him life. And then he took out a rib and created who? The woman. And they became one. They lived in a paradise. They had everything going for them. And then one day the tempter showed up and said, why are you listening to God? He's keeping you from something that if you had it, you would be just like him. Remember that? And Adam and Eve took of that fruit. They disobeyed God. And suddenly sin was born into their life, into their conscience. The first thing they did was go and, and cover up, right? And we've been covering up ever since, not just physically, but, but spiritually and morally, trying to, trying to justify ourselves before God. And living in rebellion. Well, they had children. Remember that? And uh, two of their sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain murdered Abel, right? And if you study Genesis 3, 4, 5, and 6, the human race, though small, becomes so corrupt that God has to intervene. And in an act of mercy, yes, an act of mercy, he judges humanity by bringing the flood. Otherwise, there's no hope at all. Because only one man is righteous. And what's his name? Noah. And so God, with the very word that he spoke to push the water back and bring the land out, speaks, and he covers the land up. He speaks, and he covers the land up with water, and we have the flood. Now, what, what's the whole point to that? What point is Peter making? The point that Peter, make, Peter is making is this. God will not always, always close his eye to the world's sinful situation. God will not always wait God will not always stand back. One day, God is going to intervene and put an end to all of it. God is conscious of what's going on in the world. He knows that time is running out and judgment will come again. But this time, God's not going to bring a flood, Peter says, but God is going to bring a what? 
of fire. And God will judge the earth with fire. Turn over to verse 10 and listen to this graphics description. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. And the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with the promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. In apocalyptic literature, fire always stands for judgment and purification. And so just as God judged the world with the flood, he will judge the universe and the world with a fire and everything will be purified and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And some people read this, they go, ah, that's evidence of an atomic or a nuclear bomb that's going to go off. Well, the Bible has nothing to say about anything nuclear there. And fire could be literal or it could be metaphorical. The point is God is going to judge and purify and get rid of all the garbage and wickedness and evil done in this world. And while my heart grieves at the fact that there are going to be human beings who are going to be judged because they have consciously told God, I don't want you. At the same time, my heart rejoices to think that someday we will live in a universe and a world where there is no more evil No more sin, no more abuse, no more molestation, no more robbery, no more thievery, no more, you know, all the stuff. And I look forward to that day, don't you? What a great day that'll be. The question I have is, why doesn't God do it now? Why doesn't God deal with this now? Well, look at the passage again. Let's pick it up here in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. It says in verse 8, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Just as he brought the flood, he is going to eventually bring judgment and end the world. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to what? To repentance. The problem is, too many of us who are followers of Jesus know that verse too well. We can rattle it off, but we don't live that verse. We'll talk about that in a minute. The problem most of us struggle with, that I struggle with, in this whole idea of the second coming of Jesus, is time. Is time. See, we have a tendency to measure time against our own existence, which is very limited. 70, maybe 80 years, it says in Psalm, if we we have strength and health. Time. When you're young, you feel like you have all the time in the world, don't you? Or at least, I remember when I was a kid, I did. Maybe our kids' lives are too structured now. But, you know, I just felt like, you know, I want to grow up. Remember that? When you're a kid, I want to grow up. I, I want to drive a car, right? You know, I want to I get married. And, and all the stuff that goes with it. And then you get a little bit older, and what happens? You go, wow, time is catching up. Time is catching up. This is, this is getting hard. I hope I've spent my life well. I don't have a whole lot of time left. I wonder if I've wasted my time. We also have a tendency to measure time against history. And that is, we look at where we are in, in time, and we look back, and I don't know about you, but when I think history, I think old, don't you? When I think history, I think long. 
And so we'll talk about something that happened a thousand or two thousand or five thousand or ten thousand years ago. We can't imagine that. That's a long time ago. And so oftentimes when we, when we think about the fact that Jesus promised over two thousand years ago, two thousand years ago that he would come again, and then we look at where we are in time, we go, we go, man, that's so long. What is taking so long? But God, God looks at time differently. See, while we measure time against our existence, with God there is no time. Think about this for a minute. God is timeless. He is the Alpha and the Omega, which means he has no beginning, he has no end. I can't explain that to you. He has always been. So, so he can't, in a sense, God can't measure time against himself because he is what? He is timeless. It says in the text that, well, let's just look at it. What does he say to us? He says, with the Lord, a day is like a what? And a thousand years is like a, I read about or heard about a, um, a guy this past week. You know, these, uh, uh, Wall Street had his big week, right? And uh, I'm sure many of you were affected by that or have been affected by that financially. And there was a, 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 an investor who in particular was, was affected by all this. And it made him start reading the Bible. Strange the kinds of things that make you read the Bible, isn't it? And he was reading this passage and came across that verse and he decided to pray. And he said, he said, Lord, is it, is it true that, that a, a thousand years is like a day for you or a day is like a thousand years? And the Lord said, yes. He said, well, then in a way it's like a million dollars would be like a penny to you, right? And the Lord said, yes. And the investor said, well, could I have one of those pennies? And the Lord said, yes, just wait here. I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> yeah, whatever, right. Anyway, God looks at time differently than you and I look at time. We look at time selfishly. We look at time selfishly. We look at time in terms of how it affects us. And when things get really tight and things get really difficult as believers, we want Jesus to beam us up, don't we? We want Jesus to come back. I mean, think about what's going on in the world right now. I mean, just be a realist for a moment. Think what's going on economically. Think about what's going on politically. Think about what's going on with, with, with people being killed and bombs going off and threats being made and, and all the stuff. You know, when you're young, you kind of have this agenda you want to get through. And then you kind of get to that place, you get through that agenda, and you go, oh my goodness, God, get me out of this, right? And how many of you besides me have ever thought, Lord, please, just enough is enough. Please, take me home. Ever had that thought? Take us home. Rapture your church. Do something. Because I don't want to go through what's happening down here. And God looks at it differently. And God says, no, I'm not ready yet because God looks at time as an opportunity. An opportunity for one more person in some nation in Africa, in North America, South America, in Europe or in Asia or some remote island we never heard of. Just, Just one more opportunity for a person to experience his love, his grace, his mercy and his forgiveness. Because he is willing that none should what? But all should come to repentance. And in one true sense, time really is running out. And the reason God left you and me here 
And why he's taking so long is so that in every generation there would be people like you and me who would live for his heart and live for his cause to see one more person come to faith in Christ. Because our time is set, Psalm 139, Psalm 90, make it clear. Our time is set, our days are set. It's like a clock over our head that's not ticking up, it's ticking down. We only have so much time, and there are people all around you and me, and they got that clock, and it's ticking down, it's ticking down, and they need to hear. They need to know that God loves them, and that God sent his son to die for them, and you and I, church, are the ones that he's left to get that message out. And so I want you to watch this video, and I want you to think about how time is running out in people's lives. Let's watch.
know in many ways you aren't living till you save somebody's life. And you and I can't save somebody, but Jesus can. And you and I are the lifesaver that he oftentimes uses. Say it if it's worth saving me. There are so many people in our culture today who want to be saved, but they don't know how. And they want to know that they're worth being saved. And they are worth being saved because Jesus died for them, right? You are worth being saved because he sent his son to die for you and for me. And the Bible says, not Dale Hummel, but the Bible says, he is willing that none should perish. Grieves God's heart. But all should come to repentance. And that's an indictment against the church in America today. I get around to enough churches and helping enough pastors to know right now that most churches really don't care about the lost. They are a country club. They exist for their own good and their own benefit. They don't have the heart of God. I want to ask you this morning, not to make you feel guilty or bad, but I want to ask you right now, are you living primarily for the same reason that that God sent His Son to see lost people one to Christ? Who's the last person you prayed for? Who's the last unbeliever that you befriended, not to pounce on them with the gospel, but just to show them the love of Jesus? So that as they interacted with you and got to know you, they would want to know why you're different. And you could just tell them the story of how Jesus changed your life. I'm not exempt from that. I fear too many Christians feel like they do their job on Sunday. They're exempted from having to live and share their faith with others. Last night when I went to bed, I laid on on a chair in our room there and I just thought and talked to God and I had to ask God, forgive me for how complacent I've become and my concern for lost people. How easy it is for me just to go through life unaware of the people who are around me with their, their number that's ticking down. And I just ask God to reawaken in me once again a heart and a passion for the lost people around me to be conscious for them and to love them and pray for them and befriend them. And be accountable for the people around me. How about you? How about you? How many of you are, seek- How many of you are followers of Jesus? Let me just see your hands for a minute. Most of us are. Most of us are. If you're a follower of Jesus, do you believe that he indwells your life supernaturally through the Spirit? Let me see your hands. So the Bible says. So if Christ lives in me and Christ lives in you, has his, has his passion changed? Is he, has he changed his view or is he still willing that none should perish but all should come to repentance? He's still, he's still not willing that any should perish but all should come to repentance. And that's here. That's in me. The problem is I'm blocking that in, in my life right now. I'm not letting... I'm not letting him freely have that passion in me, are you? Why is God taking so long? Why doesn't he come back? You know the answer, don't you? Because to him, a thousand years is like a day, a day is like a thousand years. He does not measure time like we do. No, for God, time is an opportunity for one more person to come to faith. And God's asking you as you leave this place this morning, to look at time the same way. Your time is running out. Someone else's time is running out. You have what they don't. And God wants you to give it away. Let's pray. Lord, as we leave this place and walk out of here, I ask that we will never look at people the same again. I pray that we'll see a clock on everybody's head. Remind us, Lord, that eternity is at stake. And that, Lord, we would 
naturally and simply just show them your compassion through a smile, through a handshake, through help, whatever it is, God. That you, Lord, would create the opportunities for us to begin to share our faith, begin to talk to them about your love and your grace, and perhaps even bring them here someday. Lord, I pray that we would take the risks to reach across the aisle to show your grace and love. And Lord, we understand now why you haven't come back yet. And though we pray your coming would be soon, even today, nonetheless, for as long as you give us on earth, in our own lifetime, help us to be about what matters to you most. Lost people, of which every one of us, including me, was one at one time. And Lord, awaken our church, and I pray someday that every chair in this building will be filled with men and women and children whose hearts and lives are being changed by your grace. Because we know that will bring you glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you don't leave here discouraged. I hope you don't leave here feeling guilt-ridden. I hope you just leave here saying, God, that's an area i got to work on, and I'm going to work on it, and I'm going to share your faith with others. Let's all stand together. Let me just pray a blessing over you. If you want to receive that blessing, you just lift your hands up toward God. Father, with open hands. We are humble and we are unashamed to say, God, we need you today. So for every hand that's open to you, pour out your blessing and provide an opportunity this day and this coming week for that person to be able to share Christ in some way, however small it is, whether it's a smile, a handshake, or a word. Let them, let us affect our world for Jesus this week. We ask your precious name. And all God's people said... And if you're a guest, I'll see you at the guest center. God bless you guys.